0: morning, friends. Good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Our portion today will be verse 7 through 19 of this chapter, and I'd like to read that for us as we begin this morning. Mark chapter 3 verses 7 through 19. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in your text and hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God, his authoritative and inerrant and inspired word. Let's ask again for help as we look into our passage this morning. As Tim has already prayed, we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We have... Uh, Indeed, two sets of eyes, Father, and we pray not to just see with our physical eyesight, but with our spiritual eyesight, that you would make the text clear, make the passage clear, give us the understanding we need to comprehend the truth that's here before us. Give me the words and the mind and the clarity to communicate the truth that is before us in Christ. Let us be brought near to you as we do so. Help us, Christ Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start out with a pop quiz today. So if you would, pull out a sheet of notebook paper. Write your name and mailbox number at the top right corner. And uh, answer true or false to the following questions. I'm going to say this to some of you. Some of you don't need it said to, but... um, please keep your answers to yourself. I speak this to our more enthusiastic attendees down here in the front row. (laughs) And some of you other enthusiastic people scattered throughout. Because if you answer out loud, you might be wrong. Your co-worker Tom can bring Bible verses to mind and quote them to you. He must be a genuine Christian. Your co worker Tom can bring Bible verses to mind and quote them to you. He must be a genuine Christian. True or false? It's false. Uh, It is false. After all, even Satan can quote scripture, and this is, you remember exactly what he did to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in the 1700s, that scriptures suddenly coming to the mind are no true sign of genuine faith. Number two, your friend Sandy believes that Jesus is the Son of God. She must be a genuine Christian. Your friend Sandy believes that Jesus is the Son of God. She must be a genuine Christian. The answer to this is also false because even the demons in our passage believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And as Dr. Sproul, tongue-in-cheek, liked to point out to us that believing in God merely qualifies you to be a demon. Uh, Dr. Sproul, tongue-in-cheek, hear hear that. Um, Yes, number three. Your brother Tom prayed the sinner's prayer at the end of a service and now spends as much time at church as he can. He must be a genuine Christian. Your brother Tom prayed the sinner's prayer at the end of a service, church service of course, and now spends as much time at church as he can. He must be a genuine Christian. And the answer is also false. Neither praying the sinner's prayer nor spending a lot of time at church activities necessarily indicates that someone is a Christian. We could name many other things that people rely on as signs that they're genuine believers. In fact, Jonathan Edwards named 12 things that believers often relied on as signs of true faith. This is back uh, during the era of the first great, great awakening, when he saw many people profess to be Christians, but many who were not. And, and from this list, he has many of you would recognize and possibly even affirm some of these things yourself. But the things he mentions, all 12 of them, none of them are definite indicators that someone has come to faith in Christ. None of them indicate that someone must be a genuine Christian. And so then, what are the distinguishing marks of a genuine disciple? What things distinguish a genuine follower of Jesus from a false one? Well, we'll discover the answer by observing two groups of people in today's passage. In the passage I've just read to you, Mark uh, describes two groups of people to us. I want to pause, though, and tell you why I'm asking this question. I'm not asking about distinguishing marks of a disciple to put you in a continual state of anxiety about your salvation. That's not my goal. I believe God's word holds out genuine assurance to those who have put their faith in the atoning death of Jesus. I believe we can be certain that we're children of God. But often you and I base our assurance on things that scripture does not teach. For some pastors, I'm told it's enough that you've prayed the sinner's prayer. And I would put in parentheses, even mindlessly. It is merely saying the words uh, they believe that make you a Christian. These men encourage you perhaps to write down the date in the front of your Bible as the day you became a child of God and to never, ever doubt that you were a Christian from then on. Some go so far as encouraging you to drive a stake in your backyard as a reminder of what you've done. And maybe some of you sitting here have experienced that very thing. But what Does the word of God say? Does it tell us to never ever doubt that Christ has saved us? To never ever take a look at our lives to to make sure that we are the real deal? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Indeed, some of the things Paul described before this in 2 Corinthians 13, those uh, believers at Corinth should not have been assured of their salvation. And so We're encouraged to examine our faith. This is not to become, I'm speaking to the obsessive compulsives in this audience, of which there are probably many, uh, or a few. Well, there's me. Um, (laughs) If you're like me, you can obsess about this and drive yourself into morbid introspection. That's not what I'm encouraging or, or... uh, you know, some of you just need to take a chill pill and not carry this too far. But all of us are encouraged to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Um, all I'm trying to get you to do this morning is take the test. Is the confidence of your salvation based on some homespun, anecdotal wisdom passed down from generation to generation, or is the confidence of your salvation based on what God's word has to say. What are the distinguishing marks of a genuine disciple? What distinguishes a real follower of Jesus from a false one? Well, let's look at these two groups of people and find out. The first group that we encounter is a group made up of those who follow Jesus because of his popularity. Group one consists of those who wanted to see and experience the miracles of Jesus. And I want to mention three things in this point about his popularity. First, I want you to see the degree of his popularity. I want you to see just how popular Jesus was. And this begins in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Let me give you the setting, because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Mark. Um, The last we saw of Jesus, he was in the city of Capernaum, ministering in the synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, you remember. And in the paragraph right above this, we saw Jesus heal a man with a deformed hand on that Sabbath, which infuriated the Pharisees. Look at their response up in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, how to destroy him. And so to avoid further confrontation with the Pharisees at the present time, Jesus withdraws from the city to the nearby Sea of Galilee, taking his disciples with him. So far, we've seen uh, five of his disciples introduced. Peter and Andrew, brothers. James and John, also brothers. And then Matthew, known as Levi, uh, over in chapter 2. And the term Mark uses for these men, disciple, refers to a student or a learner. Someone who learns through active fellowship with a teacher, an apprentice. And this is our subject matter today. What are the distinguishing marks of a genuine disciple, a true believer in Jesus Christ, someone who follows the Lord genuinely? Well, moving on from this small group of men, Mark goes on to describe a great crowd. Verse 7 goes on to say, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. Uh, from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. The group following Christ comes from a surprisingly wide area. I realize this is far too small to read, and that's not my intention. Just just notice the different colors, if you would. Uh, That's mainly what I want you to notice. Here's Galilee up here. Here's Capernaum and you see it's right next to the Sea of Galilee. The beginning of Mark takes place primarily in this northern region of Galilee, but we've just read that his followers, this crowd, comes not only from here, but also from Jerusalem in the region of Judea, and further south in the region called Idumea, and some people uh, estimate that the mileage between the uh Idumea and the Sea of Galilee is 120 miles. Uh, others in this large crowd come from the other side of the Jordan River. Over here, possibly Perea, even Decapolis. The Jordan River runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea right here. And then it says some are from Tyre. And then Sidon would be probably right up about there. But I want you to see the variety of people many of these are Jewish regions, some contain a mix of Jew and non-Jewish people, but Tyre and Sidon, way up there, 50 miles to the north, primarily Gentile or non-Jewish. So there is a variety of people from a variety of regions, and Mark is demonstrating that in spite of opposition from the Pharisees, Jesus remains overwhelmingly popular. His reputation is growing. His fame is, is not declining, it's spreading. Uh, one Bible scholar said the fame of Jesus is far reaching and all encompassing. So, first of all, Mark describes the degree of Jesus' popularity, it is widespread and increasing. Then, Mark goes on to describe the danger of his popularity. This crowd is so large that Jesus' physical safety has been threatened. Look at verse 9 with me. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This is no quiet press conference This is the scene of someone being mobbed by the crowd, hassled by reporters, as we see so often in the evening news that as someone comes out of a courtroom, uh, perhaps we see this frequently on the news. But toward the end of verse 9 in your Bible, it says, all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And that phrase, pressed around him, could more literally be translated, they fell on him, the way sometimes a robber would fall upon a traveler. Or it could say they threw themselves at him. Listen to Pastor Ken Hughes describe this to us. It was a a massive response. We must remember that people who have traveled far will not be denied. There were hordes followed by hordes, wave upon wave of needy people, all demanding attention. So great was the press that Christ was in physical danger. This is why Jesus tells his men to have a small boat ready so that he could escape from the crowd by rowing out a short distance onto the lake, the Sea of Galilee, this, for you and I, would be the equivalent of having a car in the alley with the engine running so we could beat a hasty retreat. So we see, secondly, the danger of his popularity. He is This crowd is so large, his physical safety is threatened. But then third, I want you to see the determination of his popularity. What I mean by that is what determined his popularity? What was the determining factor? And and we see this just up back in verse 8. We didn't quite finish verse 8. Look to the last sentence of that verse, if you would. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And this reveals that the reason for his widespread popularity was not his teaching, but his miracles. Mark has demonstrated and shown us that teaching for Christ was the most essential, well in fact maybe at this time the most important element of his earthly ministry. He began with the words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. But this crowd hasn't come to hear Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God, but to benefit from his power to heal and cast out demons. They came for the kind of scene that verse 11 describes to us. Look at what it says there. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And this stems from the demon's belief. It was widely believed in that era that to reveal someone's name gives you power over them. Maybe they were trying to prevent him from further exorcisms. We're not sure. But verse 12 reveals that his power over them is absolute. It says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. One man says, this is putting it mildly, that it should say he muzzled them. Uh, He had complete authority over the demonic realm. This is this is the kind of thing the crowd came to see, the display of Jesus' power and healings and casting out demons. Listen to Kent Hughes again. He says, Our Lord's primary motivation is this time was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the necessity of repentance and belief. Physical healing was only secondary, but the truth is Jesus' words held little attraction for the multitudes. What they wanted to experience and see were healings and other attendant miracles that would benefit them personally. This is what made him so popular. This is what determined his popularity. They were were in it to see the fireworks. They wanted to flash and bang. They wanted to see his miracles. And so this first group follows Jesus because of his popularity. Uh they came to follow him and here we've seen the degree of his popularity and the danger of it to Christ personally and the determination of his popularity. You're aware that this group still exists. Not in the region of Palestine, but right here in Canton, Georgia. I'm sure you've seen it. Many who attend church only to see the fireworks. They're drawn not to hear the word of God, but they're drawn because they like the band. This is the first group who follow Christ because of his popularity. And as we go further, we encounter now this second group of people who we'll look at a little more closely. The second group follows Christ because of his appointment. The second group follows Christ because they have been summoned by him. Now, these verses specifically refer to the 12. But I believe we can make a broader application to you and me as well. After all, what is true of the 12 should be true of us. There are a couple of uh, uh, exceptions, and I'll be careful as I apply these verses not to apply everything about the 12 to you and me. But there is a large part of what is true of them that should be true of you and me. Uh, In fact, one man goes so far as to state this. The call and commission of the 12 is representative of that of all Jesus' followers. I, I agree with this. And so we'll use caution as we go through these, but I believe they can apply to us. And I want to mention four things under his appointment. And the first is the call of his disciples, Jesus summons the 12 men he desires. Beginning in verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain. The traditional view is that uh, Mark is referring to the horns of Hatton. Even though the mountain is not named, uh, he's referring to this area. Let me describe what you're looking at here. It's a beautiful mountain, isn't it? But... Okay, this behind here is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We are looking roughly uh, southeast across the Sea of Galilee. This would be on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And this large, broad area is what's referred to and probably where this large crowd has, or where Jesus has gone with his men And uh, verse 13 goes on to say, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. The phrase is a little more emphatic than the ESV indicates. The sense is that he summoned those he willed, those he willed to follow him. He summoned them. One man says this, Disciples do not decide to follow Jesus and do him a favor in so doing. Rather, his call supersedes their wills. The society in which he calls them is determined not by their preferences, but by his summons. Its members have nothing in common except his sovereign call, Apart from which the community cannot exist. That might be offensive to you, You might not like to hear the idea that Christ summons his followers. I assure you, based on what scripture says of our natural condition, had he not summoned, we would not have followed. This call of Jesus upon these men, his divine summons, it's effective. Look at how they respond. It says, And he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Uh, Those he summons respond. This is also described for us in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And again, Jesus says this in chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then earlier in the book, he had said these words, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? There's our exception right there. Judas Iscariot, the notable exception, he responded outwardly to the call, but not inwardly. So first we see the call of disciples. Jesus summons those he desires, and they respond. This is the first distinguishing mark of a genuine believer. They've been called or summoned to follow Christ. Some of you can identify with this, that you could no more resist uh, the call to put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you could grow wings and fly. Uh, that had he not drawn you to himself, you would not have come. Others of you sitting here today think that it was all up to you. It was your decision. You made the call. You went after him. But the truth is, what scripture consistently presents, I'm sorry if this is offensive, Um I'm saying that to be polite. I'm really not sorry deep inside. (laughs) I understand, though, and this is the genuine part of what I'm saying, I understand that it might be difficult to hear that Christ had to call us to himself or we would not have come. Uh, And I believe scripture is consistent in teaching this point of view. So we see the call. Those who are genuine disciples are called, summoned. They receive what's called this effective call, this or effectual call. Um, it's what happened to Lydia in Acts 16 as uh, Peter was preaching, and it says, the Lord opened her heart to believe the things that were being taught by Peter. Christ summons those he desires and they respond. This is a distinguishing mark of a disciple. Moving on, we see another uh, thing. Second, we see the creation of his disciples. Uh, the creation of them, and this is also in verse 14, uh, He and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. The word appointed uh, can simply be and more literally be translated, and he made twelve. Very common little Greek verb. You could even say, he created twelve. This word appointed, that I say can be translated in various ways, is the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which in Genesis 1 uses this same Greek term, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The sense of the word here in verse 14 is that Jesus made these men. That Jesus brought them into existence, not physically, but spiritually. These men were a new creation in Christ, of course, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. So one man makes this conclusion, the setting of the call of the 12 and 13 and 14 underscores in every conceivable way the authority of Jesus to determine and create his followers. And so I say to you, friend, this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what took place with you. Because God's word says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not as though God found an old house and decided, I can do something with this. I can fix this up. And about half a million dollars later, you know, there's there's a... Nice looking house. That's not what he did. It says that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2 describe this truth as well. This is probably two of the best words in the New Testament. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Matt likes to make the point at our membership seminars that we're not just um, in trouble, in need of a hand. We're not on a life preserver, floating in this vast ocean of sin, and we need someone to pull us out. This says that we are dead on the bottom of the sea. And we need to be given new life uh, to come out of that world. Charles Spurgeon offers this illustration. He says, one of the early saints, I think it was Augustine, and he's correct, it was, had indulged in great sins in his younger days. After his conversion, he met a woman who had been the sharer of his wicked follies. She approached him winningly, winningly, wink, wink, if you know what I'm saying, and said to him, Augustine, but he ran away from her with all speed. She called after him and said, Augustine, it is I. He turned around and said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead and I am a new creature in Christ. This is what we're seeing here, the creation of, Of disciples. Jesus made 12, brought them into existence. They became new creations in Christ. Again, Judas, the exception. This is a second distinguishing mark of a genuine follower. Uh, And this must be true of genuine followers. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is why we insist insist on seeing fruit in the life of a professing Christian. He or she has had a change of heart. There must be evidence of this in their lives. Mom and dad, there must be evidence of fruit in the lives of your children. It's not enough that they attend church. Again, the cliche Attending church no more makes you a Christian than spending time in the garage makes you a car. Trite, but true. Uh, there must be this creation, this new creation in Christ. We see next this commission of his disciples. The call of Jesus' disciples is defined here by two further purpose statements. Look again at verse 14. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. There's one of those purpose statements, to be with him. This gets a little small here, and I apologize for that. First, the disciples are called to be with him, meaning that they're called to fellowship with him and be mentored by him. This is very important. In fact, one scholar says this statement has atomic significance meaning it's really a big deal. It, it, it reveals that discipleship is first a relationship with Christ before it involves doing for Christ. The very thing you've heard from the lips of Pastor Brian up here. Being with him. Personal involvement with him. Being trained by him must come first. It's the requirement for serving in his name As disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ, you and I are first called to be with him. This means spending time with him, uh, speaking to him in prayer, listening to him respond through his word. If, If you have been called to follow Jesus Christ, if he has made you a new creation in him, then know this, friend, your first priority is to be with him to spend time with him before you do anything for him. We're called to be with him. But then follows the second purpose statement and that second part of the commission is to be sent out. It says so that they might be with him and he might send them out. After you and I have spent time with Christ learning from him and being instructed by him We are sent out by him. And the phrase sent out is the word apostello from which we get the word apostle. This refers to being sent out in someone's name, to be sent out in an official capacity by someone, and to perform a specific task in that person's name. And again, referring first to the 12 apostles, those official representatives of Christ commissioned to establish the New Testament church, write the New Testament scriptures, and authenticate their message with signs and wonders, these men fulfilled a unique role in the New Testament church, which ended with the death of the last apostle. This is how our role in theirs differs. We were not called to do those things. I refer to those men, uh, the apostles with a capital A. It's a unique office, ended with the death of the last apostle. But then in an unofficial capacity, Every follower of Jesus Christ has been sent out. Every one of us is called to represent Christ to the world around us. Friend, if you know Jesus, if you claim to know Jesus, this is you. You too have been sent out as an apostle spelled with a small lowercase a. We're all in some sense sent out by him. And look at what they're sent to do. And we are as well. Uh, And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, you might shudder at the word preach, and you want nothing to do with public speaking, which is most people that I know. But this word means simply proclaim, to act as the king's herald would. Announcing the king's proclamation in every town and village. The 12 certainly did this, and every disciple is called to do this in some way, whether it's in public, like I'm doing right now before you, or whether it's in private with your children, or a close friend, or co worker. Every disciple of Jesus is called to proclamation the good news of his payment for sin on the cross and and urging others to to turn and follow him disciples are sent out to preach to herald to proclaim but second disciples are sent out to fight every form of evil the disciples excuse me the apostles did this by casting out demons in Jesus name but what about you and I? Are we called to cast out demons? My answer is no, we're not. Now listen to Pastor J.C. Ryle, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, though not called Now, to cast out evil spirits from the body, we must be ever ready to resist the devil's devices and to denounce his snares for the soul. That is what we are called to do, is to resist evil, fight evil in every form of it that we encounter, such as abortion. The third thing is this commission of the disciples. Uh, commissioned for two purposes to, to be with him and to be sent out by him to announce the good news and fight everything every form of evil this is the third distinguishing mark of a genuine follower you have this commission laid upon you to uh, be with him and to be sent out by him one more thing to point out about the second group of people, and that's the collection of his disciples. Uh, We find this, uh, Mark names this diverse group of disciples that Jesus summoned and created. Look at uh, verse 16 with me and note these names. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Some of these are very recognizable to us. We know uh, much about Peter, James, and John. Uh, they prominent and put at the top of every list of disciples to draw attention to them. They're also known as the inner circle of Christ, who accompanied him on special occasions, and sometimes they brought Andrew along with them. There's some names here that you barely recognize, that we know very little about, and that's because um, there's much less said. And this group consists of Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and Judas Iscariot. There are some things said about them, but not nearly as much as these other three that began the list. And finally, there's some that we frankly know nothing about. And outside of this list, we don't know anything. Uh, And that among these are uh, uh, Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot. But the most significant thing, and it's why I've called it a collection, is because it's such a diverse group. And what's important is not who they are here, but what they become. And the first three men in particular. How Peter, who is renamed uh, Simon, who is named Peter, Rock, And you and I know he was nothing like a rock to begin with. He was like squishy sand to begin with. You know, in the court of the high priest, he's got a little girl pushing him around and telling him, you know, what's what. And he's afraid of her. But he becomes a rock. And when he's filled with the Spirit, he stands up and is the spokesman for the New Testament church. He is essentially the leader of the the rest of the disciples and becomes the key spokesman. And it says there in Acts 2 that the disciples took their stand before the crowd and Peter leading the way. Think of James and John, (laughs) sons of thunder, which is, I guess, a polite way of saying big mouths. Lord, do you want us to call fire down on this village? Do you remember that? Uh, But then we see John in his epistle writing the words, little children, little children. And know how Christ has transformed these three in particular. They demonstrate that discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ but in what Christ can make of disciples. Very important distinguishing mark is that a disciple of Christ, a genuine one, is someone that Christ continues to mold and transform. So, you disciples sitting in front of me, it's time for the gut check. Is Christ transforming you? Now, are you changing still? I know perhaps you might have think you've arrived. I hope not, because he is out to prove you wrong if you think that. Discipleship is about change and growth. And the minute we think we've arrived and have gotten there, Uh, Oh, how does the verse say? Take heed lest ye fall. Christ is continually changing us into his image, and we will not be completely changed until we see him face to face. So then, what are the distinguishing marks of a genuine disciple? What distinguishes a genuine one from a false one? we've looked at two groups this morning to try to answer this. We've seen one group that followed Jesus because of his popularity and we saw the degree of his popularity and how dangerous it was to him personally and then what determined it. But then we we drilled down into this second group uh, who uh, were disciples because of his appointment. They were summoned by Christ and answered the call. They were created by him. Uh, They became new creations in Christ. And, And so, friend, I'm I'm asking you now if if you're a new creation in Christ, are there new desires? Or do you still want to do the same old things that you've always wanted to do before you knew Christ? Are you still the same old lump of clay that you've always been? Speak the same way, think the same things, pursue the same sins. How can that possibly coincide with this second mark that you've supposed to be made, a new creation in Christ? And then this commission that we've all been called to to spend time with him. Some of you, whoa, some of you hear that and think, oh, that is not my thing, spending time with him. Well, a, a disciple, yes, it is. You're called to be with him and to have him mentor you through his word and to talk to him through prayer. How's that going, by the way? Did you spend time with him today? Did you pause between your coffee and your bowl of cereal to to spend time with the Lord and hear him in his word this morning? Before everything got going and before you had that big argument before coming to church today and be with him and be sent out by him. Are you willing to be sent? You have been sent. Are you being obedient to that? Are you proclaiming him where you are? Uh, at work or in your neighborhood or in the role that he's placed you? And then finally this collection that wow, we see transformation among this collection. And is that you? Is that you? Are you being transformed? And I know some of you are right now because I know it hurts. And God is chiseling off the rough edges still and it's painful. But praise the Lord, he's not left you where you are. I urge you to take the test today. Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You know, if you're not sure, again, I I present this not to... uh, bring anxiety uh, to you if if you are a follower of Jesus Christ unless you need to be made anxious because there's sin present in your life and uh, boy, nobody, none of us should be comfortable calling ourselves followers of Jesus if we allow sin to remain and I'm happy to talk to you about it if you're nervous about this any of the elders would be happy to talk to you If you're not sure you're basing your assurance on the right thing, uh, then come talk to one of us. But I I pray that you see fruit in your life, even in seed form. See the germ of it take root and new desires have have come. You actually wanted to be here this morning. That's evidence of either your parents forcing you to come or else you have a desire to hear from Christ and be with his people. Take the test and see where you come out. Jesus, please search our hearts. And Father, where there is legitimate fruit, remind us of these things. And where there's not, remind us and show us that, that we have said this for so long that we are a follower of Jesus, but really there's no evidence there that nothing has changed in us. Our old heart is still present. Father, make us truly and genuinely your followers. Uh, Maybe we've dropped the baton, we've dropped the ball, and have left off when we were once following you. Renew our desires for you. Uh, Let us shake off the remains of 2020 and COVID and arouse our desire, dispel our apathy to know you and give us hunger and thirst for you, Christ Jesus, to be with you. Again, do this work in us by your good spirit, we pray, Savior, in your name. Amen.